Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 16. We'll be in Exodus 16 this morning, continuing our series through the book of Exodus. Um, Carrie, I'm going to skip that first section of scripture and I'm just going to teach through it. So normally I would read through, it's just 36 verses. And um, I want to teach a little bit differently, I think this morning, just to get us through it um, a little bit more quickly. But let me catch us up on what's happened. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God miraculously delivered them through 10 mighty acts. The 10th act was called the plague of the Passover, the plague of the firstborn, in which God said, I will kill the firstborn in your home unless you spread the, the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorposts of your home. Israelites did it. They are set free and delivered. The Egyptians kick them out. Get out of here. Your God is too big for us. Uh, they run. They find themselves uh, backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are chasing after them and God delivers them by splitting the waters of the Red Sea. And they walk through towards the wilderness. Now, the expectation of the Israelites was, hey, not too long from here and we're going to be in the promised land. I don't know how many of you have traveled with your kids before but it feels like they think you should be at the promised land as immediately when you pull out of your driveway. Are we there yet? How about now? How much longer? Can I watch a show? Listen, when I was growing up, I don't want to get into all that, but we didn't have shows to watch. We had road signs to watch. That's what we watched. But they think they should be there. Um, and they're traveling three days later. We looked at this last week. They have run out of water. Um, and we talked about how many times we look at the Israelites, gosh, they're so weak. I can't believe they would do that. And then you realize you haven't gone without your Diet Coke in 12 hours and you're about to lose your mind. Three, three days later, they're on the verge of dying and God delivers them, gives them miraculously water um, from a bitter stream. He turns it into sweet, sweet water for them. And not too longer from them, he leads them to a place called Elam. And Elam is supposed to represent this oasis where God provides bountifully for them. We're going to pick up here in Exodus chapter 16, and it's been about a month now that they've been set free from slavery in Egypt. But what you're going to realize is a month is not enough time to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. It's going to take a bit more than that. To set the context, I want to show you a picture. And this is from 1973. August 23rd, 1973, Jan Eric Olson, who was on leave from prison, walked into Credit Banken in Normal Storg Square in Stockholm, Sweden, and attempted to rob a bank. The police were notified and quickly arrived on the scene, and Olson took four people hostage and made a set of demands. Included in his demands was that his former cellmate, Clark Olofsson, be brought from prison to the bank. Over a five-day period, television crews set up around the bank, and this became the first criminal event in Sweden to be covered by live television, which I think is always a dangerous thing to be done. Olsen and Olafsson barricaded the inner main vault in which they kept these four hostages for five days. Olsen called the Swedish prime minister and said that he would kill the hostages, and he backed up this threat by grabbing one of them in a stranglehold, and then she was heard screaming, and he hung up. The next day, this very hostage named Kristen Enmark called the prime minister herself from the bank. And she told the prime minister she was very displeased with his attitude and the way that he handled the situation with Olsen. And she asked that he let Olsen and Olafsson and the hostages leave unharmed. 
This hostage, Kristen Enmark, said that she felt safe with the, with the captors, Olsen and Olafsson, but feared the police might escalate the situation in using violent methods. The police got in and delivered and set free these hostages. And then the time came for court. The hostages refused to testify against Olsen and Olafsson and instead decided to defend them. This is what is now, uh, has been, now been called Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a condition in which hostages or, or those who have been abused develop a psychological bond with their captors or abusers. It results from a set of circumstances, including the power imbalances contained in hostage-taking, kidnapping, and abusive relationships. Now, beyond Stockholm Syndrome, psychologists have started to discover that not only is it emotional, it is actually physiological. In the midst of abuse, the brain stops developing the primary things that are necessary to development proper attachment feelings and also to assess threat. And so what's happened for people who have Stockholm Syndrome or who have um, been delivered or walked out of abusive situations, emotional, physical, or whatever it is, because that hasn't been developed, and many of you, maybe you understand some of this personally, is that you don't have a real good gauge of what is a threat and what isn't a threat. And in fact, for, in many cases, the hostages or those who have been abused long for the days of being a hostage. They elevate the captor and anyone new who comes in to lead them is, is perceived as a threat. So they can't attach well, they don't love well, and there's no vulnerability. I know it's a heavy way to start off the morning, particularly with kids in here, but I wanna say all that to say this. You, before you knew Jesus, you had a captor and an abuser, the devil himself. And he used and abused you and mistreated you. And over the course of your life, you began to believe this is what life is like. And then you begin to hear the gospel and the gospel makes its way in. And if you're not careful, what is meant to be a message of hope begins to sound like a message of threat. And you long for the days before your salvation because at least then you knew what to expect. This new world with this new Messiah, this new savior, this new leader can often be hard for a lot of us. But please hear me and let me be clear. Each and every one of us as human beings who have been born into sin have a bit of Stockholm syndrome in our own hearts and minds. And the fact that we actually, if we're honest about it, we loved our sin. Find times where we defend the actions of the past or we defend even the work of the enemy or those who have hurt us. And there's a God who has come to set us free, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. As we read through Exodus chapter 16, again, I want to caution us, let's not think of the Israelites as these um, ignorant, weak snowflakes. They're people just like you and me. This story of the Exodus is your story and it's my story. I was delivered from slavery to my sin. I walked through the waters of baptism and three days later I was complaining that God hadn't given enough to me. You have and I have, this is our journey towards freedom. And just like the Israelites where God took them out of Egypt but had to get the Egypt out of them, I believe for many of us until the day we die, the process is to get the Egypt out of each and every one of us. 
Let's go. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They, the Israelites, set out from Elam. Again, where these springs were, it's an oasis. And all the congregation of the people of Israel, two million people, came to the wilderness of sin. Now, before you want me to title this, A Journey in the Wilderness of Sin, you need to know this. This word sin is not the same word that we use for sin. And maybe you've heard pastors use this, like, oh, this is the wilderness of sin. You know what happens in the wilderness of sin? It's not about that. This is actually shorthand for Sinai. It might be the wilderness of Sinai. So before you believe I missed something, I didn't miss it. I studied it and I'm not going to do it. And the wilderness of sin is where he takes them to. And you're going to notice, here's what God does, man. He just takes them from one wilderness to the next. You ever feel that way with God? It's just one desert to the next one. And you feel like you hit an oasis on the way. And then here comes another wilderness. Here is the journey. And this wilderness is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. That's important because it tells us it's only been a month since they've been set free from slavery in Egypt. It's only been a month. Now, Egypt, or Israel was in Egypt for 430 years and they're a month free. You do the math. A month in freedom versus 430 years in slavery isn't quite gonna work to get the Egypt out of them. And then I want you to factor in this. This generation of Israelites had never experienced anything outside of Egypt. All they knew was slavery. All they knew was Pharaoh. All they knew was making bricks and mortar. This is all they knew. They'd never once tasted the world outside of it. They weren't like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. They didn't taste all of that. The only thing they know is that they are slaves in Egypt. And so then God moves them and sets them free. Keep that in mind as we see this journey of theirs. Verse two. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Listen, I know there's a few of you who don't like me, but if it was a whole congregation, I'm not sure what would happen. But this whole congregation of people, two million people grumbling, murmuring against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse three, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. I want you to sit down tomorrow at your, at your cookout and I want you to call the grill a meat pot <laughs> and, see, and see what they say. It's biblical. I'm sitting by the meat pot. We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, we can look at that and we're like, come on, man, you, got, you can't be serious. But I want you to keep in mind what we just learned about Stockholm Syndrome. I want you to keep in mind what you just learned about them only being free for, for a month after being slaves for their whole lives. They don't know anything different. And at this point, Moses and Aaron don't seem as credible as leaders as maybe Pharaoh did. Because, I mean, Pharaoh might have been a punk and Pharaoh might have been a dictator and he might have caused all kinds of issues, but at least he fed us. You're promising freedom to us. And so far over the course of a month, we've run out of water and we've run out of food. Feel like Pharaoh's starting to inch his way up the ladder now. I might want to go back to where Pharaoh was. I want you to keep in mind what they want. And they're saying, we would have rather died by the hand of the Lord there than to die out here with you. This isn't the only time they'll complain about food. They're in the wilderness for 40 years and they'll complain about food again. Those of you who have kids, you understand. It's not just a one-time thing. This happens over and over again. And in Numbers chapter 11, they're hungry again. They're complaining about their food and they make this statement. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. And then they make this statement that cost us nothing. 
This is Stockholm Syndrome. When you begin to forget the pain of the past and elevate what you thought was good in the past. I want you to notice who they're grumbling against, Moses and Aaron. Because again, they'd rather have Pharaoh than have Moses and Aaron at this point. Then verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to make it rain. You're welcome. You were just wondering, is he cool? Now you know, I am cool. (laughs) Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Circle that, underline it. Whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, they're complaining and God says, all right, I got it. I'm gonna make it rain bread from heaven. Now, as a dad, here's what I would have said. Oh, you're complaining about what mama made you for dinner? Then you can go to bed hungry. I'm fine with it. You can eat in the morning. You're actually going to eat this in the morning. I'm going to leave it on the table until you get up in the morning and then you will eat it again. Any dads, amen to that? Yeah, thank you, thank you. I feel better. I feel better about the way I treat my kids now because of you. But look at the good grace of God. God says, I hear you're grumbling and I'm going to give you more bread than you even know what to do with so that you will know who I am, but he says, so that I might test you. Now, I don't know how you read the Bible and how this, what this means and how this affects you, but for many of us right there, that might affect our view of God. You're saying that God's going to test his people? Because I'm pretty, what? (laughs) Is that a Wilkerson? Because... We start to believe lies about the Bible when things are taken out of context. We, believe to be, we begin to believe things like God won't give you more than you can handle and cleanliness is next to godliness. Listen, that's, one of those isn't in the Bible. Maybe both of them. Does God test his people? Yes. Yes, he does test his people. But I want you to be clear on what I just said. God tests his people. He tests his people. He didn't test them before he delivered them. He tested them after he delivered them. He didn't make them pass a test to earn salvation. He granted them salvation. And now he's going to test whether they're going to walk in his law or not. But notice how he's going to do the test. The first statement he says is, I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven as a test. The test is not scarcity. The test is plenty. That's the test. And this isn't new to God. God has done this throughout creation. In the beginning, in Genesis, God creates the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, he gives Adam and Eve all kinds of food to eat. Every tree that's good for fruit that they can eat. And of these hundreds, thousands of trees, there's one that God says, I don't want you to eat from this one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know what that's called? That's a test. Will you trust me? Will you trust my view of good and evil? Or will you make it up for yourself. And Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed the test. And yet God in his grace meets them in their failure. This is who God is. And now he gives another test here. So I want you to pay attention to this. The blessing is the test. The opportunity is the test. That's the test. Tons of trees. That's the test. I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. That is the the test to see whether you'll walk in my law or not. Those of us who are married, there's a point in your time when you actually prayed to be married. Do you remember that? You prayed for a spouse. 
And it wasn't long after that that you realized this is all just a big test. This is all this is. This is just a test. God blessed you. <laughs> God blessed you with a spouse. And that blessing, that opportunity now turned to a test. And the test is, do you still love me more than you love the spouse? Some of you prayed for kids and God gave you a kid, whether through, um, whether, whether through birth or adoption. And whether, I don't know if you believe it or not, but at some point in your life, you prayed for that child. You wanted him. You did. You're like, God, would you please? And then he gave you him. You're like, I, I, I feel like there's been miscommunication here. <laughs> but the blessing of the child was a test. Do you still trust me? Some of you prayed for a new job and God gave you a new job. And in that job became, now it's a test. Do you still trust me? It's not like God's just throwing tests out there for us to fail. What God is saying, I'm going to bless you more than you know what to do with. And inside of that blessing is a test. Do you still trust me? This is the test. So God says, I'm going to pour down rain from heaven and I'm going to test you to see whether or not you will walk in my law. Same thing is true for you and me today. I know many of us are in seasons where it's hard to believe it, but God has blessed us. You're here today sitting in an air-conditioned room. God's blessed you. You have breath in your lungs. God has blessed you. You have food to eat today. God has blessed you. You're sitting next to family and friends. God has blessed you. Then verse five. So keep that in mind with the test. Verse five, on the sixth day, so now he's given them a plan for a week. On the sixth day of the week, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you should know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will know it was Yahweh who delivered you. Remember, the whole point of this journey in Exodus is to prove, for God to prove, I'm better than Pharaoh and I'm better than the Egyptian gods. And God says, here's how you will know. I'm gonna give you meat this evening and then every morning from now to for 40 years, you're gonna have bread to eat. This is how you will know that it's me. Verse six, seven. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord, Yahweh. And what are we? I love this, that Moses has to throw this in. Oh, and by the way, why are you mad at us? Why do you grumble at us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. And by the way, what are we? Who are we, Moses and Aaron? Your, your grumbling is not against us. It's against the Lord. And then Moses and Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. I don't know how your homes work, um, but I think every home has this. Um, every, every parent has the child who communicates to the other children. Do you have one of those? Especially when that other child's in trouble. Do you... Do you Know what I'm talking about? So like for us, we have a kid and um, well, we have three kids. And when one of them gets in trouble or I feel like something's happening upstairs that shouldn't be done or there's whatever's happening. Listen, I, I'm not walking up the stairs. I had kids for that. And so I, I'm like, hey, hey, one of you, come here, go upstairs and tell your brother to come down. I need to talk to him. Does this happen in your home? Just mine? And that's not like, I tell him to come down because I have some really good news to share with him. Tell him to come down. I just won the lottery and I want to give him everything. That's, that, that's not whatever happens. It's, hey, tell your brother, I heard what he just said. Tell him to come see me. Is that how it goes in your home? Okay, so this is what happens. Moses tells Aaron, hey, hey, listen, go tell the people. God heard them complaining and he needs to talk to them. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. What do you think is about to happen? 
especially because you walked with Pharaoh. And those conversations with Pharaoh didn't go with, hey, I'm going to make it rain down bread from heaven for you. It went, you're not going to eat again for the rest of your life. So he goes and he tells them, he tells Aaron to say this to the people. Verse 10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, the cloud they're following by day. So they hear this and they see the cloud. and They're like, oh, this is not going to be good. Then the Lord said to Moses, then verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Here we go. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. And then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your Elohim. What a change that Moses now has to tell them. When they come to stand before the Lord to say, he heard your complaining and he heard so much of it, he's gonna bless you more. That's what he's saying. He heard all of it. And I gotta tell you, he's gonna make it rain bread and he's going to give you meat tonight, and you're going to like it. <laughs> this is what he does. This is Yahweh. This is the one true God. Our God is not Pharaoh. Our God is not the God of the Egyptians. His blessing is not dependent upon us and our obedience. His blessing is dependent upon his character, and this is who he is. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this? Oh, this is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So again, let's think about what's happening before we begin to rush to conclusions and judge the Israelites. They've been told God's going to give you bread in the morning. They go out in the morning and all they find is dandruff on the ground. That's all they find. <laughs> and the question is, what is this? As if to say, you said we were getting bread. You ever had that moment with the Lord? When you feel like he's promised you something and then you go out to get what he's promised you. You're like, I don't, this is not what we talked about. This looks way different. And then it takes a Moses to say, no, 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 that's it. That's the bread. That's the blessing. This is the blessing? Yeah, yeah, that's the blessing. It doesn't look like bread, I know. But this is the blessing. You promised to give you bread until you were full. This is the blessing. What's interesting is this Hebrew word, what is it? It's actually the Hebrew word manna. What they will call it in the wilderness for the rest of their 40 years is what is this? Can I, can I have some what, what is this toast? Sure. This is what they call it. What is this? As if to remind themselves of this moment. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, and omer is about six pints. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent or for your family in the household. Then the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he can eat. This is the miracle, the, the beginning of the miracle of the manna. No matter what they brought in, it was enough. It was enough for everyone. 
19, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. Then verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some part of it, they, some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. Stank is in the Bible right there. <laughs> and Moses was angry with them. Verse 21, morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, some thought they could get some leftovers for the next day. And again, before we rush to conclusions, I need you to think about where they've come from. They've come from Egypt. You aren't guaranteed the next one. You work to live. You work to eat. And if you're able to save some for the next day, you do it because you don't know what tomorrow holds. This is why. They're still not at a place of trusting God over trusting Pharaoh. And we can give them some grace. It's only been a month. Verse 23, 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, they're like, well, hold on. They're getting more. You told them not to get more. These are the ones who, we, our daughter says she isn't tattletale. She just reports. I'm just reporting that my brother did this. So they're reporting to Moses. They took, they took two. I saw, I saw all of them. They took two. And Moses said to them, yeah, because that's what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This phrase, holy Sabbath, is the first time it appears in Scripture. And if you're paying attention, what you recognize in the timeline is we haven't even gotten to the Ten Commandments of the Sabbath yet. This isn't a command this is a gift. This is a holy Sabbath. Holy set apart. Sabbath meaning a ceasing from work. This is a holy rest. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you, what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. And this has to blow their mind because if you, if you pick double up on Wednesday, by Thursday, it's ruined. But if you pick double up on Friday, on Saturday, it's still there. How does it know? How does the manna know what day it is? Like, how, how does that happen? Because this is the miracle of the man. This is what God does. And God's worked it all out. They don't have to figure it out. Just do what he's asked you to do. And it'll be fine. Verse 24, they laid it aside until the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none in the field. On the seventh day, though, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. What a surprise. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you, this is Hebrew plurals is y'all, how long will y'all refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. I want you to pay attention to a particular word there in verse 19, 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Lord has given you rest. He hasn't demanded the Sabbath. He has given it to you. He has given you rest. 
In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is just doing what he does, and in, what, in doing what he does, he's upsetting the religious authorities of the day. And there are particular things that they've held really strongly to, and one of them happens to be the Sabbath. And they've held strongly to the Sabbath legalistically. And they've made such crazy demands and laws over the Sabbath about you can, uh, if you drag something, it's okay, but you can't carry something. If you leave a mark in the sand this long, it counts as work, but this long, it doesn't. And so Jesus is just doing what he does because he's free in the Lord, right? He's, he's resting in this and, and he's fine. Here's what happens in Mark chapter two, verse 23. On the Sabbath, he, this is Jesus, he was going through the grain fields. And as he and his disciples made their way, the disciples began to pluck grains, uh, heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, they were reporting to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, I don't know if you've ever just walked in a grain field and pulled off a head of grain. It's not that hard. And they were like, what? look at them. Look at what they're doing. And I love how Jesus handles this because what happens for the Pharisees is they forget their story. Like they forget a lot of it and they pick pieces of it. And Jesus is like, well, listen, did you forget about? And he says this in verse 25. Have you never read of what David did? Now, David is, I mean, he's, he's a big deal. Like he's on the Mount Rushmore for them. He's, you gotta, this is David. Like we're not talking about Jonah. We're talking about David. Did you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, he says in 26, how he entered into the house of God in the temple at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. There was a particular group or amount of bread, show bread, set aside in the temple for a particular season, a particular time that was not to be touched outside of that. But David walked in the temple because he was hungry and he saw the bread and he ate it. He said, did you forget about David? Like he, he did something similar. And he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but for the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. Did you, did you forget that? You forgot that part. You forgot. And then he says this in 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift for mankind. Mankind is not a gift to uphold the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to mankind. It takes us all the way back here to Exodus 16 where it says, the Lord says he has given them the Sabbath. So here's the truth for us here this morning that I think we have to wrestle with personally. We still have the heart of Egypt in each and every one of us. We still hold in high regard our captor. We still hold in high regard the days when we sat by the meat pots and ate till we were full. We still hold in regard the ethics of Egypt. What was the ethic of Egypt? You work or you die. You work or you don't eat. And you can't trust the Pharaoh. You can't trust the king. In our world born into sin, we have the same ethic in many of us. And what's been drilled into our hearts before we knew Jesus and even still is, you can't trust God. Because you've tried to trust other kings, you've tried to trust other leaders, you've tried to trust a husband or a father or a grandfather, and you see how that went for you. And that Egypt is still in you. We still live under the ethic that if it is to be, it's up to me. We live under that um, financially, we live under that uh, emotionally, we live under that spiritually as well. We live still under the ethic of Egypt. 
The problem with that is in Egypt, there's no joy. In Egypt, there's no delight. In Egypt, there's no goodness. In Egypt, there's only suffering and anxiety and slavery. But for the people of God in the promised land, oh, there is much joy. There is much delight. There is much rest to be found. And the way that he takes them there, this beginning of getting the Egypt out of them is here with the Sabbath. And Sabbath means to cease. It means to rest. But let me say this about Sabbath, just to get us all on the same page. I believe the point of the Sabbath is to let God be good. The point of the rest, the day of rest, the point of the Sabbath, of resting from our labor, the point of that Old Testament rest and then the eternal rest that we get in the finished work of Jesus. I think it's all summed up in this. The point of the Sabbath is to just let God be good. In our culture, we don't let anything be good. We don't. We've got reasons to tear down everyone. We've got reasons to attack and, cr and criticize and critique every person. You can't even let your spouse be good. You can't let your kids be good. I can't let teachers be good. I can't let music be good. I, we can't. And it manifests itself for us spiritually that we have a really hard time letting God be good. What if he's just good though? Like what if you can't explain it away? What, what if he is really just that good? Like what, what if it actually isn't about your behavior? What if he's just good? I think there are two ways that we make God, make it hard for God to be good. The first is this, I don't think we rest enough. And I wanna say this from you in humility, I'm not lauding myself at all. Um, I have a really hard time resting. This summer, my family and I will go on vacation for a few days and I will enjoy the last two of them unless the Lord intervenes miraculously. I just have a really hard time resting. And so what that builds in me, if I'm being honest, is a real animosity towards lazy people. And by lazy, I mean when you don't work as hard as I think I work. And because of that, for most of my life, I've had a real hard time just letting God be good. It's just been hard for me. I've had a hard time just resting in his presence. I've had a hard time just resting and letting him do what he does and be him. I've tried to finagle and white knuckle myself. I've tried to do all of it. Spiritually, I have a really hard time accepting the good grace of God because I don't earn it. I don't feel like I deserve it. And I don't. That's why it's called grace. It's really hard for me. But I don't rest well. And what's underneath that is I don't know that I believe God is good enough. I believe he's good as long as I do my part. What I'm learning is that even if I completely screw up my part, he's still good. And when I grumble and complain, he pours out bread from heaven. I think one reason we have a hard time letting God be good is we don't rest enough. We work and we work and we work and we don't give space for God just to provide and for God to be good. And so figuratively, we go out on the seventh day. Figuratively, we store stuff aside for a rainy day. And we don't just let God provide. Our lives are built on efficiency. And when it's not efficient, it's not good. The Sabbath is not efficient. So I want to give you permission today to let God be good. 
Let him do it. Let him provide. Now, I say all that to say this. The second reason we don't ever experience the goodness of God and we can't let God be good is we don't work enough. Like that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If you pay attention, God provides the bread from heaven. But notice where he does not provide it. He does not provide it straight into their mouths. He does not make it rain right into their mouth. He doesn't make it rain bread right into their home. He doesn't make it rain banana bread freshly baked in the morning for them. He doesn't make it gluten-free for someone who's gluten-free but doesn't taste gluten-free. He doesn't do that. He puts it out on the ground and they have to go out and get it. For some of us, the issue is not that we work too much, is that we rest too much. And what happens when you rest too much is you become entitled. Like, God, why didn't you? You said you're going to give me bread. Why am I still hungry? And God's like, have you looked outside? It's right there. I don't, I don't know why you haven't gone to get it. And we become entitled, like, you're supposed to, and you should have, and why didn't you? And the whole time God's saying, I provided. I poured it out. And you didn't go and gather. And notice on the sixth day, they had to work twice as hard. Why? To provide space for rest on the seventh day. You want to know why many of us can't rest on the Sabbath day? Why we don't have a day of rest? Why we can't set time aside for the Lord? Because you haven't prepared for it. You know what it takes? You know what it takes to have a day of rest? Is that you work twice as hard the day before. You know what it takes for me to be able to rest on vacation? There's a lot of boxes I got to check to get there. And if I really want to rest, I'm going to have to do it. They had to go and gather twice as much because it wasn't going to be there the next day. There's those two reasons why we really have a hard time resting. So let me just say this just to make you all mad. I think we work harder to prepare for work and for a test than we do to prepare for church. Your son's got a baseball tournament on a Saturday morning and you make sure he's in bed by seven or eight on Friday night. You got church on Sunday morning, he's up till two playing video games with his friends. You got an early work meeting on Monday morning, you got all your stuff ready, you got your clothes laid out, you've done all your work and you're ready for your meeting. You got to show up and serve at church a little bit early on a Sunday. You wake up in a frantic hurry trying to figure it all out. The Sabbath is a gift. And to receive the gift, we have to do the work to open our hands to receive it. It's a hard lesson for us to learn. But here's the gift of it. Psalm 34, verse eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not the one who takes refuge in his bank account or in his relationship or in his clothes or his cars. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And when you taste the goodness of God, you'll never forget it. Verse nine, oh, fear the Lord, all you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I think the biggest reason we struggle with rest is guilt and shame. John chapter 21, Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. He's appeared to some of his disciples and now he's sent them off to the Sea of Galilee. He says, I'm going to meet you there. 
And so they're there and Jesus just takes his sweet time getting there. And while they're waiting, Peter is there. And Peter is the one who had denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion. And Peter is wallowing in guilt and shame. He just, he can't believe that that's who he is. And he hasn't been able to rest. He hasn't been able to take a breath. And he says to the disciples, while they're in this room by the Sea of Galilee, he just looks at him and he says, guys, I'm going fishing. And now listen, Peter doesn't go fishing like you and I go fishing. Like he doesn't go fishing just to kill some time or just to have a good time or get out on the water. Peter goes fishing so he can eat. This was Peter's profession before Jesus. Fishing was Peter's Egypt. And because he's wallowing in guilt and shame and can't rest, Peter remembers, hey, the last time I felt that was when I was fishing. I'm going back, man. I'm going back to my Egypt. At least there, there were flesh pots, there were meat pots and I could eat. At least I could do that. And he goes out and he can't catch anything. Have you experienced that? We're like, I'm going back to my Egypt. And like, this is awful. And God's like, yeah, because that's why I brought you from there. You go back to your drugs, you go back to um, any of your addictions, you go back to your gossiping, you go back to your frantic schedule, including travel ball and cheerleading, and you go back to that. You're like, oh, this is so bad. Why am I doing this? And God's like, uh-huh, yeah. But then just like God poured down bread from heaven, Jesus shows up to Peter from the shore. Like, hey, have you tried the other side? And if you know Peter, like I know Peter, Peter said some stuff under his breath, you know? So who's this guy? Peter does it. The Bible tells us he hauls in such a load of fish, he and the disciples, that they can't even bring it on the boat. And at that moment, Peter knows it is the Lord. And Peter jumps in the water and he swims there. And John's like, we weren't that far, so I just rode in. Peter gets to Jesus. He says, Lord, it is you. And Jesus says, yeah, it's me. Let's go have breakfast. I've got bread, by the way. I think for many of us, the reason why we don't rest in the goodness of God is because we're so aware of the badness of ourselves. The eternal rest of God isn't built upon your sin. It's built upon the goodness of God. And I don't know what shame is pushing you back into your Egypt further and further in, but you're not gonna find freedom there. I know it. I don't. I didn't. You won't. But you'll find it in the good grace of God. He says, I've heard your murmuring. I've heard your complaining. And I'm going to bless you. What you do with the blessing is up to you. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. Just wrestle through some of this this morning. I don't know where you find yourself today. Tempted to go back to your Egypt, maybe. Tempted to run back to the things that you had long left old addictions, old feelings, old people, old sin. Because at least you knew what you got back then. This whole thing of trusting God's hard. I want you to know that he's heard your grumbling and complaining. And in his great grace, he's got breakfast ready for you. If you'll come. Many of us, what we've run back to is the workaholism that we struggle with. Trying to find our identity in what we do, not in who he is. Just want to challenge you this summer to let God be good. 
Some of us are going to make plans that are going to cost us a Sabbath. I want to caution us against it. Because it's a gift for you, for your good. Not a demand to be upheld, but for you. For some of us this morning, you've never experienced rest because you've never experienced the finished work of Jesus. It is finished. The work is done. You can rest in it today by just receiving the gift of grace by the finished work of Jesus on the cross that paid the debt for your sin. You can stop trying to pay it. The gift's been given to you. If you would receive it and walk it. God, I love you. I can't believe you love me. But I'm so glad you do. So glad that you love a broken, messed up person like me enough in such a way that the blessings keep coming. And maybe they always have. I just have eyes to see it now. Maybe that's what's changed. But God, I'm thankful for your blessing. May I steward them well. May we steward your blessings well. And may we stick to the law. It is a sweet, sweet taste on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.